Good morning again. You may have seen online or on the news about this revival taking place in Asbury uh, College in Kentucky, and uh, it's been going on for over a week, mainly among young college students, which is uh, where a lot of uh, revivals and even awakenings in the history of church take place, and um, among young people. And a friend of mine drove three hours to it. He was three hours away. He drove three hours to it, and he said he waited nine hours to get in. Wait outside nine hours, because you have a fire code. Only so many people can get in the building. And uh, once he got in, he was able to stay in there for two hours for worship. So incredible things happening over there. And um, uh, only a movement of God can do something like that. See, believers, we're different than the rest of the world. That's what we're talking about today, that there's a, there's a holy separation. But there's a tension. Because not only are believers in Christ different from the world, we're called to reach the world. We're called to be in the world. But there's a difference. There's a, a separation. You know, whenever someone in our family gets sick with four children, we try our best to isolate them, to separate them from the others. But typically that's not what happens. It's hard to do because uh, they all love each other. They love to hug each other and, 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 and that kind of thing. And, and, but if we separate the sick person, then, of course, they're less likely to infect other family members. But if more get sick, then, of course, it spreads. You know how that works. But looking at a passage today in Leviticus about how God is calling his people to be different, to be separate. They're about to enter a world full of a sickness. Not of a, not, not of a medical sickness, but a, a sickness of sin. And he doesn't want that sickness to spread to his people. And he knows he can't isolate them. Because that's not what his purpose is about. That would defeat the purpose of them being God's people if he isolated God's people. Uh, God has always sought to use his people to draw people to him. But he separates us in other ways so that we can draw people to him. In the Old Testament, it was through laws and things like this. But in today's church age, he does it through his moral principles revealed in the Bible and by his Holy Spirit leading and convicting People. So we are in Leviticus chapter 20, starting in verse 22. He says in verse 22, You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things. And therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. Father in heaven, help us understand that phrase that we should be God's. We are his. What does that look like in our lives? How do we live that out? Lord, show us today what it means to be holy, to be separated, Lord, as you give us your word today, 
Father, I, I pray that my words that are spoken today reflect your heart, and that your word fills us, your Holy Spirit speaks through me. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to give us today three ways, three ways God's people are different. Three ways God's people are different from the world, should be different from the world. First, God's people are, are separated, and they're separated morally. God's people are separated morally. Right? Now, I'm not talking about sinless. I'm talking about morals, things we say we believe and do the best to live them out. Okay? Look at verse 22. He says, you shall therefore keep all my statutes, all my rules, and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. Now one reason God is giving this land to the Israelites, the promised land, is because the people who were living there were doing evil things. And this is what the, the Bible shows us. If you spend time reading about all the rules in this book, Leviticus, there's a lot of rules. You'll see what the Israelites were supposed to do and not supposed to do. You'll get an idea of what the people, the current inhabitants of the land were doing. Because he's telling them what not to do. And it basically can be broken down into three types of, of categories of sin that we see listed here. The first one is this. There is a neglect of the poor, a neglect of the poor in the land, so God was moving them out. To, to counteract the deeds of the current inhabitants, God gave Israelites commands like this. Look at Leviticus 19. He says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard, you shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord, your God. This was a, a built-in system of welfare of sorts. If you had an overproduction of your harvest and they fell to the ground, you left them there for the poor people to come get. And so you had a neglect of the poor, so he's telling the Israelites, you will not neglect the poor when you go into the promised land. Secondly, Another broad category of sin in the land was just what we call sexual immorality. Chapter 18 speaks a lot about this. And, and, quite, and it uses this phrase, the uncovering nakedness, which is a polite way to discuss subjects that, quite frankly, should not be discussed. But they're there. God basically spends an entire chapter, an entire chapter, talking about all the ways incest was happening in the land. And he says, this is not how you will be. He condemns adultery. He condemns men lying with men, women lying with women, either lying with animals. All these things that he talks about. And all these statutes preclude our pastures today. The land was rife with sexual immorality, and God's people were to keep the husband and wife as he has designed. And the third area that was happening in the land was social injustice. Social injustice. Several types of people were being taken advantage of in the land. And he said, this is not how you will be. There were senior adults being taken advantage of. Can you believe that? Senior adults being taken advantage of. The immigrants, the widows, and the children. God speaks about all this. He says, 
not to do these things. He says in Leviticus 19, you shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. And as someone now who has more gray than brown or black or red or whatever color hair I have, I don't even know anymore because it's all gray. As someone who has that, you know, I amen this. Stand up before the grave. They were not honoring the elders in the land. He says, you will honor the elders. Then he says, you will not take advantage of people for financial gain. Look at Leviticus 19.35. He says, you shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances. You shall have fair balances. Just weights, a just ephah, just ten. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. So to live differently from the culture that God was kicking out, vomiting out, which is a very gross way of thinking about it, but that's the way the, word, the Lord used it. When you vomit, something's not agreeing with you. And so it comes out, and that's what God's saying. It's not, it's not healthy for the land to live like this. He says, and you will do the same thing, or I will vomit you out. He says, you will live differently. You're instructed to take care of the poor. Quit the rampant sexual sin, and see to it that all people are treated fairly. That's what he says, and the land will accept you. Now, it's important to note that God holds individuals responsible for their own sin. God holds me responsible for my sin. He holds you, each of you, responsible for your own sin. But we see that God will judge cultures, which are made up of individuals, if those societies are not living up to the standards of God, he can and he will. Now, God has a different relationship with Israel than he does any other country, including America. But we see God judges all countries based on how they treat people. God was kicking the Canaanites out of the land because of their evil. So it's a good practice that whatever nation you live in, you would do well to, to take a look of how your nation stacks up in these three areas. And most of us are living in the United States, unless you're here overseas for some reason. But how do we stack up in these areas? What about, what about the neglect of the poor? Well, honestly, because of the heavy Christian influence, the American poor are actually treated pretty well, comparatively speaking, to the rest of the world. Now, we, it's not perfect. We have a long way to go. But for the most part, because of our Christian uh, kind of uh, influence in our country, the, the poor are, 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 are treated better comparatively. Now, there will always be poor people, but generally speaking, America offers many routes to freedom from financial poverty. There are ways out. Secondly, what about sexual immorality? Well, we would probably get an F on this one as a country. In fact, there are non-Christian nations, non-Christian cultures that are better at this than we are which is saying something since we are supposed to be reflections of God. If you read all the ways that the culture in the Bible was being sexually immoral, it's not much different than America today. So that is cause for concern. What about social injustice? How do we st stack up in that area? Are, are, there, are there groups of people who are treated more unfairly in this country than others? Probably, yes. And, and we can argue about the degree as to how much that is. But no matter where you fall on that spectrum of how you think people are treated fairly or not, we would all agree that all people in the United States, even non-citizens, should be treated fairly and lovingly. 
Because this is what God's word says. Look what he says in Leviticus 19. When a stranger, a foreigner, sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So the next time you're in Walmart and you hear somebody not speaking English, <laughs> remember you're called to love them. You're called to treat them fairly because they are in your land that God's given you, that he's blessed you with. They are a sojourner, and just like God rescued the Israelites from a foreign land, don't forget that there are people here that need Jesus. So we see in all this area that God's people are separated morally. And it's a very high standard when you look at these three areas of neglecting the poor, sexual morality, social injustice. This is the heart of God. Now, all three of these things don't line up with any particular political identity. There's, a, there's an overlap. There's a blur. So have to be careful that we're getting it straight from God's word. So God's people are separated, separated morally secondly god's people are separated symbolically symbolically look at verse 24 he says i have said to you you shall inherit their land flowing with milk and honey i am the lord your god who has separated you from the peoples you shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean the unclean bird from the clean, you shall not make yourselves detestable by a beast or by a bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. What's he talking about here? Well, traditionally, biblical scholars have divided the types of laws that God has given the Israelites into three categories. Uh, they say, well, some are moral laws. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a moral issue. It's a character of God issue. Some are ceremonial. They're just symbolic. And some are civil. There's some legal demands. And so, so uh, the moral laws reflected the character of God. And then there was others that were ceremonial, meaning that they weren't necessarily moral, like the eat, the, the, you know, not eating pork and that kind of thing. And, and they, they had a meaning, but they didn't carry the same weight as thou shall not murder. Then there were civil laws, which dealt with specific things with the Israelite nation. But the Bible never seems to differentiate between these. This is something we've differentiated, notice, but the Bible doesn't really ever separate it. They're all kind of interspersed together, grouped together. With that said, though, we realize that as believers, some aspects of God's moral law do weigh heavier than participating in a Jewish feast or eating an animal that was viewed as unclean. The, the idea, this symbolic idea of uncleanness was given to the Jewish people to visibly show that they were different from other nations. So if they ran into another nation that didn't know God, they would say, why don't you eat pigs? Why don't you eat those bugs on the ground? What's different? Why? So that they could then tell them about the Lord. Tell them about what God has done for them in their lives. They were separated symbolically. Now, we use symbols all the time in our culture, so we should know this. Symbols are marks, many times, of separation. And if you don't believe that symbols are marks of separation, let me show you a symbol right now. You got it? Drum roll, please. Now that is a mark of separation if I've ever seen one before. <laughs> you put that on a car decal, you either love it or you're praying for them like I do when I drive by. 
You know what that is. All right? That's a Clemson Tiger pole. It's a symbol. If you have it on your car or anywhere else, you have declared war to half the state. That is a mark of separation. Here's another mark of separation. Oh, well, did you know the rival? If you have that, you know where your loyalty stands. Here's another mark of separation. This is the state flag palmetto tree. We have it. Also known as the, the symbol of the cult of South Carolina. In fact, my brother-in-law moved here years ago from Tennessee. He thought it was a cult symbol on everybody's cards. He didn't know what it was. It, it, it was ubiquitous. They're everywhere. Right? Here's another symbol for us. You know exactly what that is, and it doesn't mean that somebody was hungry and took a bite. Right? That is Apple computer. And then one more that you've probably recognized, and this is um, YouTube, um, also known as cat videos, right? YouTube. So you, you know that's YouTube without even looking at it, right? And so symbols, we know what symbols mean. God, God still uses symbols to differentiate believers from the world. You know, when I was a boy, I didn't think that Clemson fans are Christians. Did you know that when I was a little boy? I realized that was silly now, but I really thought that, right? And he, but it, it, he uses two primary symbols, symbols that he uses, right, for, to, to, to differentiate believers from the world. And it are the, these two things, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism takes its origin in the Jewish faith of washing and cleansing. Uh, John the Baptist used baptism to prepare the way of the Lord, requiring everyone, not just the Gentiles, but the Jews, to repent. And Christians are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's through baptism that we are officially joined into God's universal church. Now, baptism doesn't save us. It doesn't give us salvation. It is a symbol, a sign of what has happened to us. It's a reenactment. It's like a mini play. It, it looks back on the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It shows us how we have died to sin. Look at Romans 6.4. It says, we were Buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. See, when you're baptized, you are visibly showing, confessing your faith as Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So when we're saved, then we are baptized, and we show through that symbol, that symbolism, that ordinance, that we are believers, and that separates us from the world symbolically. If you ever have someone you're trying to reach that doesn't know Jesus, and you're getting baptized, you should invite them to your baptism. They'll see the gospel. They'll see what you've done. Now, the other way that we are symbolically separated from the world is through the Lord's Supper. Look at Luke 22. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, and saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. See, the Lord's Supper is for believers to take. And it shows that we are in a covenant relationship with God through Jesus. That Jesus' body was broken on the cross. His, his blood was shed on the cross. And so this symbol separates believers 
from the world. So we're separated morally, we're separated symbolically, and then finally, number three, we are separated possessively. Possessively. Now I looked up the grammar online, I think I said this right. If I don't get it right, then you know what I'm talking about. Possessively. Look at verse 26. He says, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. If you know Jesus Christ, if you believe in him, you belong to God. I belong to God. You belong to God. You are God's. Now, God is fatherly to all mankind and that all people are made in his image, but not all people are legitimate sons and daughters of him. Only believers have been adopted into the family of God through Jesus Christ. Only those who have been saved by the blood are his. Only those who have placed their faith in him are his. Only those who have asked forgiveness for their sins are his. We are his possessions. Not another God's, not anything else. We are his. Look at 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for your own possession. Now, that's not what it says. What's it say? A people for his own possession. Why? Why? Why are you God's? It tells us right here. So that you, not Pastor Charlie, but that you may proclaim his excellencies who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's why you're here still. To talk about the excellencies that he's called you. You were in darkness spiritually. You've been saved. You are now into his light. And that is why you are here. That's why he hasn't called you on home yet. Why, why hasn't the Lord called me on home yet? There's a reason. Because you are set to proclaim, each one of you and myself, to proclaim the excellencies of him who have saved us. We are his possession. And being God's possession is a good, good thing. He has us. He holds us. He'll never let us go. Because we are his. He owns us. And he's not going to let anybody steal Still you. He's that man on his porch with a shotgun daring somebody to come in. Except his shotgun shoots lightning bolts. Look at 1 Corinthians 3, 23. You are Christ's, and Christ's is God's. We are God's possession. That's how we're different than the world. My four-year-old John David is learning how to share. You know that? He's learning that not everything is his. He's learning that. And we've told him that, you know, John David, sharing is caring, so you need to share the toys. But what he likes to do is he likes to go up to another child, take the toy from them, and say, sharing's caring. I said, no, John David, that's stealing. <laughs> Just because you say sharing is caring, you can't forcibly take something from someone. That's called stealing. In some cases, it's assault. You can't force someone to willingly give them their thing. Sharing's caring is for you to know, not to repeat as some mantra as you take things, right? The person has to willingly give it to them. 
or what you're just taking, which is the opposite of sharing. Listen, when it comes to God's people, God doesn't share. And you don't want him sharing. He doesn't share. Because in that situation, sharing is uncaring. Nobody's taking you from God. And he's not giving you to somebody else because you failed him. Well, you know what? We'll give him to this false God over here because he didn't do what I wanted him to do. That doesn't happen. God keeps you. He doesn't share. It is perfectly okay because you are here for a reason, for a mission. Yes, one day we will celebrate being in heaven for many years and worship him. But today we are still called on a mission. Each one of you, as I mentioned earlier, knows someone that doesn't know Jesus. If you don't, just go walk down the street. Each one of you should walk into that room, if you haven't already, and put a white ping pong ball in the display and pray for someone who you know doesn't know Jesus. Your pastor is telling you to pray for someone who doesn't know Jesus. And if you can't do that, is Jesus working in your life? I'm sorry. If you can't pray for someone, you're called to be separate. To be separated morally, which we are. But we're also called to be on a mission. Called to be on mission. That's why we're here. Uh, Leviticus is not just a book of rules. It's a book of rules given to the Israelites as they were to show the world that their God is the one true God. And that they are different because God loves them. There was no prohibition in joining the Israelites. They took in all kind of believers who were not Jewish because they were searching for the one true God. And it's the same thing, but magnified in the New Testament age. We are now commanded to go and make disciples. The first thing, the first step to doing that is praying for those that you know need Jesus Christ so that you can proclaim the excellencies of the God who has saved you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, what he's given us, what you've given us. And Lord, as we close our time together, put those people in our hearts that we know that need you. Just like you saved the Israelites out of Egypt and took them to the promised land to bless them. You've, you've saved us from sin and taken us to the promised land one day. But until we get there, we're in our own wilderness. We're called, Lord, to follow you and to be different, but to be reaching people. Lord, help us do that today. Help us see how we can be separate how we can be on mission. Lord, we love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.